Good evening, Veritas Church. I'm glad you all managed to get here with the new service time. Um, we're doing our best to inform you, even though you may not all be on CCB. If you're not on CCB, grab me after the service and I'll make sure that you're on. So if we change our venue or our location or our time again, which you probably will, you will be uh, able to be informed on that. But, but I'm glad you're here. Um, it's good to be with all of you this evening. My name is Greg Balzer. I am a pastor here at Veritas. And I'll start out by saying that I'm thankful to Pastor Eric for providing the opportunity to be able to be here this evening and providing me with the opportunity to preach. We are continuing in our study through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm looking forward to our time together this evening, a time where it provides uh, basically time for us to spend time looking and doing three things, studying God's Word together, better understanding who our good and gracious God is, and also better understanding how God is able to uh, be working in our lives today to bring him glory. This is the seventh in a series of uh, sermons on, this, on the Sermon on the Mount. Last month we completed our look at the Beatitudes, and tonight we're going to be looking at the four verses that follow the Beatitudes, the verses on salt and light. And these verses are actually some of the most uh, common in the Bible. Um, even in 21st century, mostly secular America, uh, you probably heard some of these verses before, either in political speeches or in news articles or all different places, Boy Scout activities, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, or a city on a hill cannot be hidden. These are common verses, again, even in 21st century America, but it's my prayer that we would not take these verses for granted this evening. It's my hope that um, you and I would uh, consider these verses as seriously as they were when they were first taught by Jesus, a little in a setting probably a lot like we have here, out um, under the sky, under the canopy of sky, perhaps with some clouds, perhaps smoke. That was a Mediterranean climate. They had fires there too in the summer, right? But a situation or a, sit or a scenario uh, very much like this with a grassy knoll, a slight hill, where Jesus sat down and took time to lovingly teach his disciples. It's my prayer that we would meditate upon these very verses this evening, the very word of God, for these words are indeed as applicable to us as Christians today as they were when first spoken by Jesus over 2,000 years ago. The Sermon on the Mount can actually be organized in a number of different ways, and there's probably actually as many ways to organize or to categorize the Sermon on the Mount as there are people or commentators to be able to categorize it. For our purposes, I would like to suggest that we look at the Sermon on the Mount as being composed of two main bodies of text, the Beatitudes that we covered over the last 12 months, and then Jesus' teaching on the law that I'll probably spend the next three years going through, um, these verses on salt and light, it's debated by a lot of different commentators whether the salt and light, verse, light verses begin, belong with the Beatitudes, whether they belong with the uh, Jesus' teaching on the law. With that said, I do want to emphasize that they kind of act as a transition. And so there's a lot of information or a lot of themes that are started in the Beatitudes regarding who we are in Christ that are carried all the way through the Sermon on the Mount including as also including as well 
also covered in Jesus' teaching on the law. So tonight's verses on salt and light, think of them as a transition, and think of them as verses that basically link and connect the Beatitudes and Jesus' teaching on the law. So we've been kind of random and intermittent and coming and going recently, and so I wanted to just uh, spend a few moments to briefly highlight some of the key thoughts in the Beatitudes, and then highlight a couple of key thoughts in Jesus' teaching on the law as well. And then with that foundation or context in place, then we'll dive into our, our study of Jesus' teaching on salt and light. So we looked at the Beatitudes before. They're just 10 short verses. And those, the first 10 verses in Matthew chapter 5. And while these verses are few, they're actually very significant in, in meaning. Again, these Beatitudes, they do introduce the entire Sermon on the Mount, and they're best summarized by describing the character of Jesus' disciples. And these character quali qualities or characteristics, uh, these norms of the kingdom, uh, in, in one way, they're distinct because they really stand in full opposition to what we see in the world, where the world is proud, self-confident, boastful, always claiming rights. The, the disciples, the people described in the Beatitudes, are quite the opposite. They possess poverty of spirit, according to Jesus. They're aware of their need of a savior. They're aware of their need to be rescued, not from the world, but from themselves, from their, even their best intentions. These are a people that hunger and thirst after righteousness, not their self-righteousness, because they know that that's, that that's empty and that that's shallow and it's superficial. But these are people in the Beatitudes that basically hunger and thirst after Christ's righteousness, the real righteousness. So in this snapshot of the, of the Beatitudes, keep in mind as we go forward that the Beatitudes summarize Christians, redeemed Christians, whose heart has been transformed or changed by the Spirit of God. And in that transformation, They've been given the desire to love and serve Jesus. So that's the Beatitudes in a nutshell. The law, or Jesus' teaching on the law, follows and builds upon that foundation laid by the Beatitudes. The, Jesus' teaching on the law is much longer than that of the Beatitudes. Well, the Beatitudes are just 10 verses in chapter 5 of Matthew. The, Jesus' teaching on the law basically consumes the remainder of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. It's, it's a large body of text. While the Beatitudes focuses in on, on the being or the nature of Jesus' disciples, Christ's teaching on the law focuses in on the actions of the people. And as I've spoken before and contrasted the Beatitudes and the, and the law teaching in the past, I've talked about being and doing. So the Beatitudes are focused on being and who we are in Christ, who Christ created us to be, how he's changed our heart. And Jesus' teaching in the law basically is looking at how that being actually come, takes flesh, the actions that are driven by those changed heart attitudes, being and doing. So the teaching on the law is typified by a unique pattern of, of speech. And you've heard it before. This, you, may recognize this. It's typified by Jesus making statements such as the following. You have heard it said, A, but I say to you, B. For example, 
You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks lustfully upon a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All of these verses that Jesus teaches in his teaching on the law are calling his disciples to one thing, to a greater righteousness. This is a righteousness different than that of the world and a different righteousness than that of the Pharisees. This righteousness is described in Matthew 5.20 where we read, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is more than just good works. This is more than just moralism. What does this righteousness actually look like? This is a righteousness not based on several things. This is a righteousness not based upon the need to impress others. It's not based upon a righteousness that's focused on self or self-righteousness. It's, it's not based upon false, shallow, or external righteousness. It's also not virtue signaling. What's virtue signaling? For those of you that are not on Twitter or Facebook, virtue signaling in many cases could be defined as um, an external action that uh, shows solidarity or commitment to a cause that may or may not actually really reflect your heart attitude, right? So it's, it's doing something that basically displays a certain behavior attitude that's supposed to reflect a certain attitude of the heart and that may or may not actually be a true situation. And, and frankly, they had that same thing back in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke about it when he talked to the Pharisees and he called them, he called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you're white and clean on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. So in the same way, the Pharisees struggled with this same false sense of righteousness, that of, that of a, an external righteousness, whitewashed tomb, looks really clean, but inside full of dead man's bones. Inside there's just death and decay. So this greater righteousness is more than what we actually see in these first examples. It actually is more typified by the following. It's typified by a people that have been brought to the end of themselves, a people that have been saved by God, reconciled to God through faith, through faith in Jesus's perfect works, not their own, right? Perfect works do not earn rewards, right? God performs, let me do that again. This greater righteousness, this is a key point. This greater righteousness um, is of the Beatitudes and it's specifically a, a righteousness performed not to earn reward from God, right? We're not doing these works to, to obligate God to bless us. We're not doing things to twist God's arm to make him reward us with good things. But conversely, we're performing these good works, true Christians, people that have had their heart changed by the Spirit of God. We're doing these works in response to an acknowledgement of and I don't know, some kind of like out of gratitude for what God has done to us. It's our response to the grace and mercy of God. So in a nutshell, Jesus' teaching on the law talks about the people of the Beatitudes and how they act. 
And it's people, again, whose hearts and lives have been transformed by the Spirit of God. So tonight, we're looking at the verses of salt and light that bridge the Beatitudes and Christ's teaching on the law. And again, these describe Christians, these describe themes that carry all the way through Christians who are, have the character of the Beatitudes and Christians who act in a way that's in alignment with that described in the Beatitudes. So with that broad stroke background in mind, it's time for prayer. I'm going to need God's help to preach. You'll need God's help to listen. So let's come before our God with prayer. Father God, thank you for this time together to study your word. Pray that you give me the ability to preach your word accurately and clearly. Pray that you grant all of us here tonight the ability to be able to understand your word and to be transformed by your truth. We praise you in advance for the work that you're about to do. Amen. If you turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, or it's also on the cover of your bulletin. And those verses read as follows. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, with what will it be salted? It is good for nothing any longer, but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a measuring bowl, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So these are some verses that are actually quite a challenge to, to exegete, to describe, to understand. These verses are, are full of metaphors, salt, earth, light, darkness, talks about a lamp. And to make matters even more difficult, a lot of these metaphors have been used um, both in biblical times and in current times um, in a lot of different ways. These are very rich, deep, thick, sticky metaphors. And so it's, it's, it's rather difficult to quickly be able to identify what Jesus is talking about here. So the, the path we're going to take is to, to avoid getting lost in the forest for the trees. We're going to start out by looking at the individual metaphors, what they probably mean based upon their context, and then back up and then look at the, the, all these metaphors together as a whole. So we're going to look at the trees in the forest first, then we're going to back up and look at the whole forest. And then looking at that forest, we're going to try to read the tea leaves, read the tree leaves, and figure out what it all means. Okay, does that make sense? It's, I've read several commentaries on these verses, and they'll go on and on and on about what salt could mean or light could mean. And when you're done, you have no idea what Jesus meant when he was actually sharing these verses. So with that said... We're going to dive in to these verses, and hopefully by the end, all these individual details will coalesce and they'll come clear, and it'll be clear what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let's look first at salt. Let's examine first salt. 
who are these salty Christians? What's a salty Christian like? Christians, well, back in the biblical days, it's kind of like now in California, they didn't always have power and the refrigerators didn't always work. Actually, they didn't have any refrigerators or power at all back then. So to preserve and to keep their meat fresh, they had to rely upon other means and the most common means back there in that time was to take salt and to apply that salt to the meat and rub it in deeply and, and try to get the salt to penetrate that meat and get all through the meat so that it basically it was permeated as a whole. And so in a similar way, Christians are like salt. We're preserving agents. Christians are also flavor enhancers. Salt adds flavor or zest. How do we know this? Look with me now at uh, verse 13 in Matthew chapter 5. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, with, that, with what will it be salted? So obviously, we're not only looking at salt's preserving ability here, we're also looking at the ability of salt to act as a flavoring agent, right? So we've got a strong likelihood that Christians also serve as flavor enhancers as well as uh, preserving agents. Christians as well, like salt, are useless if diluted. Look with me now again at verse 13b, which is the second half of 13, and there's a sentence after, verse after that as well too. But if the salt has lost its taste, with what will it be salted? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. If the salt has lost its taste, it's good for nothing. Back in those days when they, they would get salt, not from the supermarket, they would pick it up. The Dead Sea was there. You had a lot of salt deposited by the river waters, and so they picked the salt up. But the salt could actually get mixed with other minerals. And if it got too mixed, it was diluted, and therefore it had no real savor or taste anymore. And in a similar way, and it went, when it reached that point, you couldn't use it for anything. There's nothing you can do with salt that's lost its taste. Salt, you can't compost it. You can't, if you add it to the soil, it kills the plants. It might kill snails. But really, beyond that, salt has, has no use. And that's why we see it here in the verse talking about it being thrown out and trodden underfoot by men because it's good for nothing any longer. So in a similar way, like salt, Christians' value is in our distinctiveness, our intensity. If we're watered down if we're diluted, if we're weak, we lose our value. That's salt. Hold those salt metaphorical thoughts. Let's move next to light. Who are these bright, light, shining Christians? Christians, you and I, we have the light of life. In John 8, chapter 12, we read, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows Jesus will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Christians, I mean, even we know Jesus is the light, right? It says right there, I'm the light of the world. So I'm not the light of the world. You're not the light of the world. But we do, have the light of the, we do have the light of life according to Jesus because we follow him. Christians have the light of life. Christians also are distinct. Oh, what a coincidence. 
just like in salt. Back in biblical times, people lived in cities for protection. And probably that was the primary reason for living in a city in, a city in the biblical times. If you've seen archaeological digs, they usually have what they call a tell. And these cities are always on a, a mound. And then as the cities are built, there's new cities built. They build on top of the rubble of the previous city. And so these cities, 99% of the time in, in Israel and in the Middle East, they're, they're on hills. And they built on hills for protection because it's easier to defend yourself when you're above somebody. It's also easier to defend yourself when you're with other people. So you've got cities formed for protection and also for commerce and gathering food and everything else. But cities back in those days, and this is an interesting thought. So back then in those days, cities were actually separated by large expanses of land. Isn't that amazing? Not like California where you've got like one city leading into the next, into the next. So picture this. You've got, it's almost like a Christmas card. You get a Christmas card every year and it shows this little, this little, maybe it's Jerusalem, Bethlehem, it's up on a hill and it's, it's dark out. It's all dark and then you've got light coming from that city and it's, it's the light of the lamps of all the people that are there together. And surrounding that city is like miles and miles, not of other city like you have here, but miles and miles and miles of nothing, absolute nothing. No street lights, no flood lamps, no security lamps, no headlamps, nothing. Dark, inky black darkness and stars. And the city on a hill, and it's all lit up. And when it does that, it stands out. That lit up city in the dark stands out. That city on a hill, it could not be hidden. Look with me right now at, at verse 14 again. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill could not be hidden, cannot be hidden. That city on a hill is distinct, it stands out. That's the nature of that city on a hill. It's raised, it's got prominent position in the flat land, and it's also bright and it stands out. Not only was that city, could it not be hidden, it was enabled to be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Christians, Christians cannot be hidden. There's inevitability here. That light cannot be hidden. Christ's visibility is inevitable. And that visibility, that light is in you and I, and it's visible. Christians as well, I would offer up from this metaphor, are located in a position of service. Look with me now at verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a measuring bowl but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Back in those days, they didn't have electricity for refrigerators. They also didn't have electricity for lighting. Back in those days, most of the houses were a sim single room, one or two stories, and they were lit by one single lamp. And that lamp was set on a lampstand in the center of the room, in a very prominent place, because if it was in the corner, the other end of the room would be dark. So you put it in the center of the room to fill up and light the entire room with that lamp. So I would argue that that lamp being on a lampstand in the center of the room is a position of honor. That lamp wasn't, well, let's look again briefly. There it is. In verse 15, 
the first half? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a measuring bowl, but on a lampstand. So not only was that light not to be hidden, because that'd be foolish, what's the purpose or the function of a lamp that's hidden? So that lamp is not hidden, it's put in a prominent place, and it gives room to everybody. So metaphorically, Christians are in a position of prominence, in a position of service, and if that lamp is hidden, just like salt that's got no function, the light has no purpose as well, too. So to wrap up the light metaphor, the second tree in the forest, it's a small forest, Christians are the light of the world. Christians stand out, distinct, prominent, stand out by contrast, light and darkness, hill versus flat. A Christian's light cannot be hidden, it's inevitable. And a Christian's light provides direction, guidance, to the entire house, to the entire world. Altogether, let's look at the forest. Altogether, these verses describe and imply four things. The condition of the world, who Christians are, what Christians should not do, and what Christians should do the world, who Christians are, what we should not do, and what we should do. And believe it or not, these metaphors inform those four conditions. The condition of the world. The fact that these verses tell us you are the salt of the earth and that salt is used as a preservative strongly implies, and this is not like a surprise to any of us right now, the world is not a great place. The world is a place filled with decay, and this world is in need of the conserving and preserving work of God through his people, through his redeemed people, changed by God. You are the light of the world also informs us regarding the condition of this world. Since the world needs light, the world must be a dark place a place in need of light, a place in need of guidance, a place in need of direction, and that direction as well as provided by those that have been redeemed, saved, changed by God, by Christians. That's the condition of the world. Who are Christians? Who are we? Christians, you and I are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's really important that I don't miss this and that you don't miss this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are not future promises. These are not commands. Jesus isn't telling us to be the light of the world. I don't have to strive. I don't have to like make my little light shine, right? I, it's, you are the light of the world. That's, it's, it's Jesus declaring who Christians are in this world. And in a similar fashion, we are the salt of the earth. As God has designed us and redeemed us, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The Beatitudes told us that we are poor in spirit, meek, humble, seeking God's righteousness, and persecuted. The Christian, don't miss out 
that these verses in Salt and Light tell us also that we are a preserving agent, the salt of the earth, and the light of the world, a city on a hill. Our active presence in this crazy mixed up world permeates and prevents decay. Your involvement and my involvement in public society provides direction and provides hope in the darkness. So that was the condition of the world. That's who Christians are. Let's look next at what Christians should not do. Normally we've got an application in the sermon, right? And the application talks about what we're called to do. But I want to first share what we're called not to do. In our verses on salt and light, we saw in both cases the need to remain distinct. The one verse reads, but if the salt has lost its taste, with what will it be salted? It's good for nothing any longer. We need to not lose our taste, not become diluted, and not compromise. And I'll admit, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that it's difficult in this world because we know you post the most innocent thing somewhere on Nextdoor or Facebook or Twitter, or you say the most innocent thing at work, the next thing you know, somebody's in your face about it. So it's difficult, but we're called to remain distinct. We're also called to love our neighbor and to pray for those who persecute us. So we're called to not lose our distinctiveness. We're also called to not hide. Do not hide your light. The world indeed is a frightening place right now, but we have to trust God. This is no longer a culture where Christianity is the accepted position, but actually that was true in Jesus' day. Imagine if somebody came into Veritas Church and said, uh, you know, all that stuff that you're, you're teaching is, is right, but actually you were just slightly off and actually on the fulfillment of everything that you're, that you're learning. Would there be pushback? Yeah, so you've got to imagine that whatever, whatever chaos and controversy we've got in our world today, there was much more chaos and controversy regarding Christians back in that day. I mean, they were taking over the, the temple with a whole new flavor of, of uh, Judaism, right? So crazy time, crazy time. So just as it was controversial and difficult now, it's controversial and di difficult. Um, back then, it's difficult now as well, too. But as we read, our light cannot be hidden. We are a city on a hill, and we are the lampstand in the center of the room. If we hide our light, and this is what we should not do, right? If we hide our light, we are good for nothing, worthless. Our purpose, our very purpose, our very purpose and meaning in life has been removed and we will be trodden underfoot by men in the street and you'll be missing, I'll be missing, you'll be missing our intended purpose as designed by God. We need to remember at all times as we learned the last time I preached on persecution, if Jesus, it's Jesus they're persecuting, not you or I. And we need to also remember that God is working all things together for good at all times. And we need to just trust him with a, with a uh, tough faith. The fourth thing, these verses tell us what Christians should do. So just a five-second, 15-second sidebar here. This sermon is for Christians. These promises are for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you can't say I'm the light of the world or the salt of the earth. Sorry, sorry. 
This, this sermon is for Christians because the audience in the original Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. The crowds were off far away. It's important to understand that our verses tonight, if you're not a Christian, or if you're a Christian as well, I'm not saying that merely being a moral person makes you a Christian. Mere compliance with the law, obedience to the law, will not save you. Rather, as we saw earlier, Christians are those to whom God has revealed their own inability to be reconciled to a holy God. Our goal here is not goodness. The goal, the requirement, the standard is perfection, it's holiness. Christians have been, are those that have had God show them that. It's been revealed to their hearts, and when they see that, they're broken and they come to Christ in faith to be reconciled to God. If you're not a Christian and would like to be redeemed, reconciled, I'd encourage you to come down after the service, and I'd love to talk to you. End of sidebar. What do these verses tell us as a Christian that we should do? Let's look finally at verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. A few years ago, I was riding home from work on one of these RT buses, and there's a man in a wheelchair nearby, and he was kind of rolling around, and he really wasn't, he had straps and like motorcycle tie-downs tying him down, but they really weren't tight, and he was kind of getting loose, and so I stepped over and helped fasten them down a bit and sat back down again, and this man in the seat in back of me says, you're a Christian, aren't you? And we had a long discussion after that. Has anybody asked if you're a Christian? These verses tell us that, Christian, you're a city on a hill, the light of the world, that you're distinct. And there are times when people testify to that, and you're not even aware of it. It's like I was just helping this guy out, right? And it's, it's, it just tells us that we are who God has told us to be here, and we should actually see those episodes in our life. Last time when I preached, we saw that God promises Christians the last beatitude, talked about God promising Christians persecution. Persecution might cause you and I to hide, to run, to compromise, to hide our light, to water down our, our words. But verse 16 here tells us that our job is not not to make our light shine. Rather, our job, our work is to let our light shine. And in my mind, that's like such a blessing. That is so encouraging. I don't have to actually be the light of the world. I simply have to surrender to God and be honest and tell people what's going on. I was talking to somebody recently, and we are talking about witness and testimony at work and how it's difficult. I work for the government, and so Christianity could be a hot topic these days. And this brother of mine said, oh, I just, people ask me, what'd you do Sunday? And I said, I went to church, right? In some cases, just doing that is shining your light. So Christian, do not be afraid of persecution. Do not frustrate God's purpose for your life. Rather, don't make your light shine, but just let your light shine. Let God be who he has created you to be and my to be, me to be. And as they, others see these good works, they will testify to the reality of our loving Father is in heaven. In some way, 
our good works, our good deeds, as we do what God has called us to do, in some way, according to verse 16, they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In some way, they don't just see the works and think, oh, Greg's a good guy, because Greg's not a good guy. In some way, they see those good works, and God is given the glory. And that's what it's all about, is giving God the glory and honor that is his due. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for teaching us who you are, who you've made us to be by your mercy and by your grace. And we thank you for reminding us that you have made us salt and light in a decaying and dark world, all for the ultimate purpose of bringing you glory. Amen.